Hi everyone and welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. My name's Steve Ingham. I'm a performance scientist by trade and training and having helped many elite athletes reach their peak through the application of scientific principles over the last 25 years. I'm also the co-founder of Supporting Champions, which applies the many principles of performance that we've learned from sport, business and education to those hoping to find a better way to create performance. So the idea behind these podcasts is to explore the science, the art, the purpose and the origins of high performance. I'm keen to discuss these concepts with the people who've achieved at the highest level, those people who've been the driving force in making high performance happen, and from those who've researched and explored aspects of performance in real depth. So on to this week's episode in which I talk to Adam Conlon, who was a captain in the British Army. So Adam undertook his officer training at the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst and then entered the Royal Artillery. And he's a veteran of two tours of Afghanistan. In this interview, Adam talks about the development path from basic training to the heat of battle, where his job was in leading teams, but literally calling the shots and coordinating the use of weapons on the battlefield. Adam opens up about the intense feeling of receiving volleys of fire from the Taliban, how he responded under that pressure, and how his training and camaraderie with other soldiers uh, developed and enabled him to perform. Poignantly, Adam shares also the process and, and the emotions of decompressing after a tour and adjusting back to normal life, which was really powerful. And now Adam spent a brief time serving Her Majesty the Queen in human resources, but put that desk job aside and is now a leadership consultant and speaker, but still finds time to use his skills in the first response teams that aid disaster zones. And we get into that skill of developing rapid teamwork and the importance of listening and rapport in engaging with survivors and locals in catastrophe stricken areas. This interview, I've got to say, was humbling. It was richly engaging, and I'd say an hour and 25 minutes of pure performance. I finished the interview uh, with Adam, moved, and frankly, I was just thankful that we have people like him amongst our population that do what they do in order to make the world a better place. Good. Right, Adam, thanks so much for joining us. Um, how are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm really good today. Good weather out of the minute. So yeah, I feel pretty good. Fantastic. So um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Give us a, a background to you. Yeah, absolutely. So um, after university, I suppose the, the biggest thing I did was I was in the uh, the British Army as an officer for, for eight years. Did two, two tours of Afghanistan leading troops um, on the very front line. And also a tour for the United Nations um, in Cyprus uh, as well, which was a hugely sort of diplomatic tour. So more paperwork than I could ever want to deal with right. again. Um, and, and then <laughs> which one's worse, frontline combat or uh, give me frontline combat any day? <laughs> paperwork almost killed me. So, so frontline combat bureaucracy. I've got shopping up there. <laughs> yeah, I'm up okay. there with you. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> These are my biggest fears in life. Um, yes, yeah, so, and then yeah, the army was fantastic. Played a lot of sport. Did also a lot of. Um, um, used to play sport for the hockey, sorry, hockey for the army. Uh, and then also did a lot of ski racing as well with the right. army, which was one of the big drives of actually why I wanted to go to the army because of the sport, the love of sport. And I, I wanted to continue that on from university. Uh, and then ever since, really, I left the army about eight years ago. Um, I did some uh, initial work for the Royal Households, uh, working out of Buckingham Palace. Mm. It, it was an office job, um, but I suppose if you're going to do an office job, you may as well 
make it a palace. Yeah. Uh, my office looked out the front and I was doing HR and kind of people development um, from from there. But London really wasn't for me. Um, and I still needed to be outside just doing stuff. Um, so amazingly, I went off to, to work in teams on super yachts. So the big 55 meter oh, super wow. yachts. Yeah, this was... I'm dealing with clients that you cannot say no to. So talk about problem solving and they're not used to people saying no. So you've got to figure stuff out and high pressure. Then I I came back to the UK after doing that, um, just finding my feet. And uh, for the last year, I've been working for um, a company called Fieri Leadership. Um, We help people uh, and teams and leaders, like we help them develop and get better. Mm. Um, and we've got a very quite sort of unique way of, of doing that. And yeah, and also I've, I've built a career as a, a speaker as well. Mm. So really love the, obviously love the limelight and talking about myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, let's unpack a lot of that because that sounds, that sounds fascinating. And I know you, you work in sort of disaster zones mm. and, and, uh, and that sounds uh, really fascinating. So um, so how long were you in the military for and what was your what was your kind of key role? So I, I was in the, the the army as an officer for eight years um, and I was in the uh, artillery part of the of the of the army. And so as a you go into the army either in two streams as the soldier kind of career path or, or the officer career path. So I went to um the officer school, which is known as Sandhurst, the mm. Royal Military Academy, and that's a twelve-month intense leadership school, um, and you are pushed really past your limits that you thought you were capable of, and at the same time they're pushing you as a person. Mm. They are holding that mirror up to who, what your real personality is, um, and uh, you know the only way you really see who you really are is when you're cold, wet, and miserable. Then they start pushing your buttons, and they want to see how you react. Mm. Not because they think it's a you're a certain person. Um, th- you you can be your own person, but you need to identify your strengths and your weaknesses, so you can alleviate for the weaknesses and work on those, etc., and see who you are as a person. So I, I did that, and then at Sandhurst, you make a um, a choice to go which part of the army you want to go into, and it's all about fit. So uh, certain personalities fit certain streams very well or your skill set. So some people go to the infantry, some people the engineers. Mm. Um, and I, I went to the artillery um, pure, pure, purely because I like the idea of you get, there's a lot of different skills in the artillery and you can do very, very different jobs. So I, I like the variety of, of everything. So I joined the artillery um, and I was in a gun troop. So that meant um, initially I was with the troop um, firing artillery in places like uh, Afghanistan and I'd be the officer at that um, within that troop and also leading the, the guns around parts of Afghanistan that we'd never been before so I'd be the one deciding where we're going how we're going to defend ourselves um, and then making sure that the, the guns then can provide the fire support to troops on the ground then my next job is a little bit way more dynamic um, so you need an artillery representative to be embedded with the infantry because you need to be right at the very front at the sharp end and the reason why you're there is so then you can direct everything that's happening so almost everything that goes bang in the battlefields mm. it would be conducted by me so okay, if you might targets and conserving ammunition etc etc yeah so the the old school idea of artillery um is quite sort of outdated these days of you used to have some guns and then as the 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 target popped up i would say left a bit right a bit up and down happy days 
But now it's a 3D battlefield, and so you have um, fast air, helicopters, rockets, artillery. And if you imagine, they're all... Let's say you've got a target, a couple of targets, and you've got your forces on the ground. You're trying to make sure everything lands at the right place at the right time and doesn't obviously hit yourself as well. And the only, the best, you've got to be able to see it. So we would have helicopters in the sky... And you'd be trying to bring in artillery, but try not to make sure you don't hit that. Okay, that, that so weapon. the chances of friendly fire potentially go up because it's so oh, huge, complex and yeah. multidimensional. Oh, it, it was. People think that because we've got so much extra technology, it becomes easier. But actually, in a ways, it can. In ways, it can be made more difficult. Um, fighting mm. an enemy in sort of grass, which goes past your, you know, like you know, fields past your head, it's still very much hand-to-hand kind of combat in terms of it's very close and it's very uh, dangerous and it's chaos and you're just trying to control chaos so and at the same time while we're getting shot at I'm trying to figure out okay this rocket's in the air at the minute I need to make sure that those troops move left right and center so it it, it was a, a phenomenal job to do but very very high pressured and yeah. um, as you said the chances of things going wrong are quite high um, and it's just trying to maintain the, the job role itself was what's known as a FOO, a forward observation officer. So you're, as I said, you're in in the uh, with the infantry. You're right up at the front, but you're making stuff happen. And um, for example, the the rockets that we could fire sometimes go to about thirty thousand feet. And obviously, aircraft going over Afghanistan travel at about that distance. Yeah. You have to clear that air path. And so yeah, there's a lot more to it than people wow. think. Yeah. So can I just pick up on something there and I want to ask you about that that sort of uh, frontline experience but mm. but you mentioned something there about fit and is that something that's spoken about or is that something that's just sort of in the ether or is that something that's measured about you've got these certain characteristics or we can develop those characteristics that could be best suited in this situation yeah so if you imagine so Santos you're you're the first you've got three terms of Sanders and that first two is your learning the first term is very basic soldiering skills so you're just learning how to be a good soldier then they really start to push the kind of leadership and management in the second bit so you're by that stage they've got a very good idea of the type of suppose the type of person you are then you are starting to make decisions about where you're going to fit in so you're making a you go and visits to um the other parts of the army when you're at Santa. So imagine like you're, it's like universities, you're going to visit a university to see what it's right. like, and whether you, you want to join. But it's a two-way system. You then request, okay, these are my top three places that I want to go to. Yeah. Artillery, engineers, infantry. But then you go through an interview process with the infantry, you know, artillery, to see whether you are the right fit. Right, okay. Um, it is talked about, because they talk about this they want you to make sure you go to the right they call it the home because you're going to be living with these people you're going to be you're going to be uh, working with them very very closely so they want to make sure that yes you've got your soldier skills and and then you've got your leadership skills as a person but they want to make sure your personality is the right fit you're going to get on with those people that then you're going to be working with. So it is, it's a, you're just, you're trying to meet in the middle. Right. Um, and so what would be, so if it's character based as much as your capabilities to do the mm-hmm. job, what, 
what are the sort of distinctive things that the Royal Artillery would need? Um, there's, I think with the artillery, you're, you're very much, I think, let me think, the, the, the Royal Artillery is the ability, I think, because you will, the artillery you move around every two years um, within your role um, to very, very different regiments. Mm. So imagine the soldiers pretty much stay mostly in their regiment, whereas you kind of drop in a lot. And I think that ability to, uh, to be a more generalist kind of characteristic okay, right, so to right. be able to get on with people very very quickly when you when you move around um yeah that's what i f- certainly find that different from maybe the guys in the infantry who would pretty much stay within that regiment right, for okay. most of their career they might leave to do a, some sort of sabbatical or secondment but they would definitely come come back to that bit so i think those had like, like big sort of generalist skills as well and um, they liked people who wanted a lot of variety out of what of what they did yeah. um and yeah as I said the ability to pick up very very different skill sets um came very very quickly so yeah i think those two especially the ability to fit in very quickly i think was a was was quite a big one right so you've gone from the um gone from university um into the military through sandhurst and and then you've sort of been propelled to to the front line what are the and and if you're computing, deciding, uh, judging, um, getting feedback, running a show. Um, what are the critical steps along your development journey that enable you and equip you to be able to, to perform that job effectively? Do you know, the, um, one of, one of the, the biggest things that I learned, and it was quite a little bit actually into my career of um if you imagine you're coming out of santos and you may be like young 20s on, on average you come out i think you finish like 23 24 years old and you're stepping into a a troop of of men and women maybe 30 40 of them and you've got a troop sergeant who's pro- definitely older than you and probably has more experience and a lot more medals he's mm. been to places but then you've come in as 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 the leader, and the biggest mistake I saw coming in in terms of is ignoring the the people with experience. Okay. And it came down to this whole I think like ego and vulnerability. For example, if when when I turned up, the first thing I did was just ask my troop sergeant. I took him quietly off to one side and said, "Look, you know I've come from the leadership school. I've got the responsibility." But I don't have the experience, so I needed to. I needed to get the most out of him. Yeah, yeah. And the biggest thing I did was start to ask him for help. Mm-hmm. And the, when I started to ask him for advice, yes, I held the final decision. I held the Queen's commission. You know, I've, I'm the one yeah. who holds the the author, the authority really. But if you ignore the people around you, like especially the ones most experienced, I saw people coming out of Sandhurst and their ego was like, oh, I know everything now. And they lost the kind of trust of that troop sergeant. And then they, it would filter down. The troop sergeant wouldn't want to work for them. Of course, they would just, they would do their job because they're ordered to. Yeah. But I think that was a difference, getting people to do things for you because you wanted to. They wanted to, not because they had to. But that's, So that's a leadership skill of getting your second in command, your... Um, to, to on on side, almost mm-hmm. like your chief follower in that sense. Yeah. Um, what are the other What are the other kind of tactics that you, or, or or critical steps you think back in terms of 
right, my journey to the front line, um, oh, yeah. I've got to have these things in place. Mm-hmm. Um, so the what you'll do is um, you will go on your kind of career courses. So imagine yeah. my my career from Santers to the front line of doing my food job, so a very mm. complex job. So the thing you need to get right first is, is your is your job right? So you go off, for example, we did a three-month course on how to become a foo. Right. So that's basically you're sitting in a classroom, learning about weapon systems, um, learning how things worked, and um, you really get into the nuts and bolts of you know weapon ranges. And you've, you've got, at the end of the day, no matter how good a people person you are, you've still got to be able to do your job. Yeah. Um, then what they do is, like a lot of military training is they give you the basics sorry the the kind of foundations and then during that course they'll they'll ramp up the pressure and ramp up the pressure right, and okay. keep testing you and testing. just thinking classroom that sounds, <laughs> yeah. it's almost well i think it's a it's a state of education in the classrooms mm. for, for most people is the ultimate yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> and they go it. into the big bad world and it's and it's all very complex so yeah they're ramping the pressure up to apply the knowledge that you've acquired in the classroom. Yeah, absolutely. And and you would you, so you'll the guys, the instructors leading these courses. Um, as I said, they'll give you the toolkit. Yeah. But they've really you've got to see it doing it for real. And when you do it for real, like live firing, that ramps up the pressure because you know that if you get this wrong, you know you know things can go very very wrong. Obviously, in the UK, we have our firing ranges. But they, uh, they're obviously very, very. It's very difficult to do something wrong. Like someone will stop you before you get to that point. But they need to ramp up the pressure, so that's why um, th- they'll do that. So you've got your artillery basic knowledge of how to do stuff. Okay, so Santos, you've been learning about how how to be a soldier, yeah. almost then a bit of a leader. Then the artillery, you get that base knowledge. Then you probably have jumped into what's known as that, like a a sort of training cycle to go to somewhere like Afghanistan. So what they do is you are going to be not just working solely as the artillery in Afghanistan. You need to be working with the infantry, the engineers. Um, so you'll work what's known in, as a battle group. So you need to start training together to okay. get to know each other. So this is the, if you've been told you're going to Afghanistan, you'll have a 12-month lead-up time. And it's what's known as, um, what was the name of it, um, pre-deployment training. And it's exactly the same principle. So they'll start, they'll get everyone who's going to be working with each other, the personalities, all working together. Like, for example, I would get to know over the next year the infantry commander, who I would pretty much be almost like a caddy to him with all his weapon systems, because mm. he's ultimately the one who's controlling all the troops on the ground. So him mm. and I need to start to learn how we operate together. So then we, this 12 months is exactly the same way. It ramps up. Um, you start with just very basic exercises, but then you've also got to hit certain ticks in the box to make sure you're adequately prepared to go to somewhere like Afghanistan. So someone literally comes and tests. You do fitness tests. You do um, live firing exercises um, to make sure all your skills and drills are properly. But then every exercise becomes much more real like it becomes much more um like for example recently they they even built mock villages of afghanistan so when you are finally like the last few exercises before you go it is live firing it's in mock villages they've got the signs of afghanistan like you were walking down the street everything feels 
very real. So, for example, when you're dealing with a pretend casualty, you know, the actors and all the yeah. blood feels very, very real. So it's it's so by the time you get to Afghanistan, you, you're not shocked by anything yeah. that okay. you know, maybe the only difference is the heat because it was like 55 degrees yeah. and a very difficult <laughs> to, can't to do. train for it. But maybe you've got some extra layers just to do that. Yeah. So so you're simulating the environment. So Absolutely. You're adjusting the pressure up. You're testing the, the bonds between each of each of the team members mm-hmm. um, so that you're when you get there it's like oh yeah okay this is yeah. this is kind of normal yeah does the very prospect of thinking right we've got 12 months to to prep here uh, we've got to get it right does that mm-hmm. kind of create the pressure on a day-to-day basis to to prep for the actual environment uh, absolutely um the there's a lot of competition in the in the military um, you know, there's a lot of sport for I think for for all right. of these reasons. Um, there is a pressure to get it right um, because ultimately you are thinking that the biggest pressure of all is if we don't get this right, people could get hurt or they could get killed. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you think a lot about how you can get better because you need to. Um, especially as an officer, the pressure to do your job properly and not mess up just so that someone doesn't get hurt because you would have to live with that for the rest of your life. Um, and also, ultimately, you don't want to be killed yourself. Yeah. But it, you always have that. I must admit, there, there was a lot of tense times in training as you try and figure out the best way to work as a team. Mm. Um, you've also got this pressure of um, you're going to be taking over from a battle group that have been there already. And so they may have done some really hard work and you don't want to lose the how far they've taken things, okay. etc. So, yeah, a lot of a, a lot more pressure than I I probably thought because I think people don't see the military getting it wrong as in wrong in training. They don't see that bit. How much we practice and rehearse yeah. and rehearse and rehearse again. But there's a there's a great saying as um, of um, no plan survives contact. Yeah. So we you know we uh, in other words contact with the enemy. We plan and plan and plan, rehearse and rehearse and rehearse just to be ready for, we can be ready when things go chaotic. Um, mm. I think that's one of the the biggest things of military training. It's allowing you to be relaxed in chaos. And um, as that takes a long time to get used to, mm. I think. As I but better to be tense on the practice fields than on the battlefields. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, they they say all the time, train hard, fight easy. Yeah, okay. Um, and it, it is it is that um, you, you just, you don't want to be, there's always going to be, you can't control what happens in the future. Um, but going through many different situations, scenarios, again and again and again and again, just gives you that confidence of, I can deal with whatever comes our way, we will yeah. deal with it, you know. I think that um, it's one of the, the kind of key lessons in our journey of, of drawing from what we would call real performance industries, mm, yeah. <laughs> where if you don't perform, people die, mm-hmm. um, and there's a there's an ultimate consequence because you know if, we, if we're drawing the lessons from sports performance, yeah, okay, we can get quite um, hyped up about um, football performance or Olympic performance, but ultimately, if someone doesn't jump as far into a sandpit as someone else you know <laughs> yeah that's it um <laughs> and and there might, a lot might be a, a group of 20 40 100 people that are quite disappointed about it but mm. um 
but it, the severity of the consequences is is low. Yeah, it's, yeah. It seems as though that these performance industries, they 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 nail it because they have to, um, and there's no alternative. Mm. And that 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 ultimately that learning comes out from a lot of the debriefing from these major major um, maneuvers and so on. Yeah, and, I, and absolutely, and and there is. I was talking about competition beforehand as well. The, the army is full of, you know, situations where you're competing against each other, maybe against the other troop in your regiment. Yeah. Then it's at a regimental level. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, on a, on a sports pitch, you know, we know that, you know, no one's going to get, no one's going to get killed. But there's certainly, I think there's a lot of pride to be played for as well. Mm. And I think, you know, nine times out of ten, you're not on the battlefield. You're not going yeah. to get killed. It's all about trying to be the best and better than the other groups. And I think that flows massively through through the military. Mm. It's not, I suppose it's not just a, it's just because someone might get hurt and killed. I think when you really, really have to dig deep, that always helps when you think about it long term. But I just think there's a real tribalism in the military of you've got your troop or you've got your regiment and you want to be better than better than everyone else right so can you describe what the sort of the the heat of the the battle in some ways Mm. and your responsibilities or or some scenarios that you were in that can can tune in the listener to to almost imagine what is it like doing that foo job Mm. controlling weaponry and, and and ultimately facing the consequences of that yeah there, there's um so in certainly my second tour of of afghanistan um as a foo um i was embedded with um a regiment called the four rifles um and actually luck, luckily um my personality got on very well with the um, the company commander and so him and i really saw eye to eye and and we were this time around actually was a very quick deployment because we we had uh, government had authorized an extra 250 troops to to head in the summer of 2009 to to helm in to help out with the elections the first ever kind of demographic uh, demographic uh, elections that were taking place and um so we didn't actually have that long year lead up it was like a condensed course so actually mm. it was quite it was quite sort of high pressured and we, when we got to camp bastion it was june time usually troops head there from April to September so it's starting to really heat up in mm. in April but at least you're kind of getting those few months to get used to it yeah whereas we rocked them straight into June and okay. the heat was already hitting plus 50 degrees um and you've also got body armor you're probably carrying about 25 kgs mm. uh, that's your helmet your body armor and a lot of ammunition and water um, etc but when we got to Camp Bastion we were thinking no oh, because we are supplementing troops maybe we're we're going to just be holding troops somewhere um and then they told us we were going to a place called Nad Ali and um every time we mentioned I hadn't heard of it and um every time I mentioned it to someone in Camp Bastion they were like oh oh Nad Ali oh, oh, oh good good luck with that and I was like well why why are you saying it like that you right. know, this is so it was obviously a very tense tense area that mm. had seen a lot of fighting and we were going to be going straight into it and Nadali is, um, if you imagine, it's almost, if you were to look at it from from the the sky, it's it's like a gridded farming area. Like everyone almost has like a square of 
farming land and in between each it's like running down irrigation ditches and roads and amazingly it was set up years ago by the americans i think when oh. in the uh, one of the early Af- afghan wars um with the ussr um and it was kind of to help the people get back on side so they they kind of help people feed water off the helmand river and they set up this grid system which is you know how americans set up their cities yeah so anyway if you imagine a very green and lush area big grass and um trees and um a, a great place to as they say it was um it's a great easy good place to fight because you've got like a lot of um irrigation ditches that you can get cover for right and um, it was, although when we had just turned up, we were early on into this, and the it was one of the, I think one of the most brutal times for the British Army. People were a lot of we were hitting a lot of um, casualties um, across Helmand Province, not just not just our groups, but you saw a lot of deaths, and um, I think it was like the highest number within a couple of week period, and. Um, what happened? What happens when there was when there was someone got injured or or killed? They would cut all communications with back in the UK, so all satellite phones were cut, so you couldn't call home. Just because the whole point was the family needed to be told before it could escape. You know, the news could maybe get to the news right. or you know. So anyway, th- this was Nad Ali, and um, it was um, there was a kind of central village area. And the locals have been too scared to set up the village because the Taliban didn't want them trading. They just wanted them trading, helping them out with the kind of the, the drug market at the time. The school had been shut down um, because um, they didn't want girls going to school. And so that no teachers felt brave enough to, you know, rightly so, to, to, to run the school. Um, and so what we were trying to do is bring security to this area to make people feel safe. Mm. Now, the, the issue... The, the big challenge is that if you start treating the place like a war zone, people then start acting like they're in a war zone. Right. So you can't just go around blowing up, blowing up stuff. And, and our mission was not to, to hunt down and kill the Taliban. Uh, it was almost like trying to distract them long enough while we, you know, basically set, try to help the village and, um, and help the, the, the police force, the Afghan National Police Force and the National Army. We we're trying to train them to help them eventually look after themselves but all this is happening obviously you've got the Taliban um, trying their best to dis- disrupt us as well and there was yeah many many f- firefights where you'd just be on patrol just showing face you know getting round all the locals um, a lot of the locals didn't want to, to, to maybe engage with you because if they were seen talking to you the Taliban would maybe you know, um, cause some pain to their families or whatever. Mm. So people were very suspicious. But yeah, so I just remember, if you're when you're on patrol, you have this like fifty-five degree heat, and um, it's just the heat's even coming off the ground, and you're you're having to be visual. You're you're wanting people to see you, so you're walking up and down these um, this road. But if you imagine there's there's grass and there's fields growing, and then suddenly you would think uh, nothing's going to happen today. And then suddenly there was just this, you just hear this like rattle of gunfire, like through the trees, mm. like, you know, you know, and it is that first few seconds is just utter, like almost like 
you're blacked out chaos. Like you just because you don't know where it's coming from. It's not like the movies where you can just identify. Oh, the guys over there. The whole point is, the Taliban had less people in the area, but that means that they're very very quick to move and they can disappear in an instant. So they would start shooting on us, and the first thing is just trying to almost like catch your breath. You just took cover, just get into some sort of irrigation ditch, and then start trying to wrestle back the chaos, as we used to call it. So you've got this like chaotic situation. You don't know where the rounds are coming from. You've got people, you've got about 30 people on this patrol. And my biggest problem as the artillery person was trying to identify the target like as in where is where is this person um or you know where are these where are these people and what's the best system that i can use to help us out it wasn't always going to be about trying to take out that enemy it might just be i would have potentially a drone up sitting in the sky and i could and i could use him to find a heat spot to find out where that where that enemy is or um, and then we would start to go into what's known as a process to like a sort of quick battle orders to figure out what we were going to do, whether we were just going to withdraw, whether the fight was worth fighting mm. or whether we were going to organize ourselves and all the different elements were going to to en- engage. And um, after mm. a few um, weeks of this, we were, we thought we thought that the, the Taliban were taking advantage a little bit. So we decided right, we're going to change our tack. So rather than let them just surprise us, we were going to surprise them. So what we did, uh, the, the, the infantry commander um, had a very clever plan of, in the middle of the night, we would drop down to these irrigation ditches and kind of almost like float down the river a little bit and set up very quietly in the middle of a Taliban-held area that we, the intelligence was telling me, yeah, there's a lot, this is pretty much where they're hanging out. And the idea was then to, um, as the sun came up, um, the Taliban that would then wake up, but we were set up and ready to go. So they would start shoot, shooting at us and then that would give us the chance then. We would have the upper hand. Mm. And all the time I would have had um, maybe a couple of Apache helicopters sitting off to the side, um, ready to ready to engage if we needed to. So everything was in place, ready to go, um, rather than us reacting and having to be oh my god uh, right, right we need to get a helicopter because that takes time to bring in so so just clarify for them it was it's not a it's not a proactive attack mm. it's it's um by stealth setting up an infrastructure that allow you to manage better in that critical decision making moment oh I, absolutely so it's almost like you've got the um you're one you're one step ahead um in your in your decision-making process, it's almost right. like you've predetermined what you're going. Because our our mission, and for example, in in that instance, was we were just going to try and give the the Taliban a bloody nose and tell them if they thought we they were in charge. No, 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 we're in charge of this area. Right. So without having to go into this full-blooded kind of you know battle, this is the best way to kind of give them a little nudge of guys, we're in charge of this area, not yeah, you. Right. So put them on the back foot. Yeah. Is that, is that because? You were getting so many of these random and hard to identify incidences. Yeah, it's exactly. We so the the issue, big issue we had in in Afghanistan is we're we're fighting what's known as an asymmetric war or an asymmetric battle. So we are we're the we've got loads of people, we've got all the technology, and yet we're not fighting an equal 
enemy across the field with yeah. similar technology. Um, we are fighting a kind of almost like a renegade little kind of, uh, you know, guys who are very, very small little groups of people, but can cause quite a lot of damage to us. Um, you know, so right. we were having to figure out how do we best do this without making the locals feel that they're in the middle of a battle zone because then they'll just clear out and they mm. won't, they won't bother anymore. So, yeah, no, it was it was it was a it was an interesting tack to take actually. Yeah. So you, so in those moments when you hear that first rattle of fire, your your you sound like your a quick physical action, get in a ditch, get cover. Yeah. And then it's kind of focus on controlling the the emotions and the mind yeah. and the rush of adrenaline so that you have clarity of thought. Oh, yes, absolutely. So um, so we, we actually went through this drill several times, as you know, and you do it again and again as soldiers, reaction to enemy fire. So you basically, you're, you do this without thought. So you just kind of either, if you've got the chance, take a, a couple of shots in the, the the reaction sorry the area where the enemy are coming from and then you take cover and then you start figuring right right let's let's try and get so that's your first reaction but i must admit the it, it comes out of absolutely nowhere and that spike of adrenaline is is quite something like yeah. as i said it's i must admit in that first minute i would go through this i don't want to be here i don't want oh my god oh my god oh my god i'm gonna i don't want to die you know isn't it it was really quite a powerful a flight type system. Yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. And, and that's the thing everything in your system is telling you get out of here get out of here you, you yeah. know you need to run away from danger and amazingly then this is when i would say in that minute that's when your training really kicks in it's that it's that right take a deep breath right we, we, what can we do here? We, the only, actually, the best way to get out of the situation is to 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 front up to it, and we need to figure out: is it a case of let's put a plan together and let's chase them down, mm. or is it a case of right, let's just see where we're at and maybe extract? So you know, you have it's almost like very simple decision making. It's mm. like right, this is a decision: either we go for it or we don't. Okay, are we in the right? And then you, in the military, we have a very um, uh, like we have a planning system like it's what's known as the seven questions so we run through a process and you can either do that with lots of detail beforehand or you can do it very very quickly on the ground so it gives you that opportunity to weigh up do we have the resources to be able to get involved in this fight or do we not and do we just get out of here mm-hmm. so it, it's like that because you've gone through that process so many times beforehand yeah. it just clicks in and you stop thinking about your emotions and then weirdly the next couple of hours just seems to f- like it, it doesn't feel like any time at all but it is absolutely flown by suddenly mm. you're three four hours in and you've, you're out of a battle and you're thinking jesus like how did how did that happen right. it's unbelievable like you're high on adrenaline um everything's kind of you've wrestled back chaos you know and that's what it is it will never feel like you've absolutely got control but i think that's not a bad thing but you're wrestling back that chaos and resting back a bit of control. Mm. Yeah. So, so do you have a tell? Do you have a kind of a weak spot or a, a unique? How do you respond under pressure? You know, because everyone responds differently. But um, what's the bit where you think I've over, I'm overcooked here? <laughs> I, I've lost it a bit. Whether that's in training or being able to spot it, and you know, and also, do you have people around you that support you that you know they can say actually, you know, let's just just help you back to the, yeah. to the sweet spot. Yeah, do, do you know, I, I 
I would love to say I was this like perfect soldier and I could. That's not the truth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not the truth. But um, I must admit, just in that, I suppose in that initial, in that initial part, um, everyone, imagine even on on the sports pits when you're really really under pressure and you've suddenly got the ball and you're like, what am I going to do? It can go a bit blank for a bit in terms of that creative side of what I'm trying to. Yeah. If I'm trying to think outside the box of, I've got all this. Got all these weapon systems. How can I? How can I best use them? But then you're you're thinking about getting shot at. You're thinking of oh my god, the responsibility of if someone gets hurt. And um, I find myself sometimes getting a bit stressed in terms of, and that would come out of I would be quite antsy with people. Like I'd be like, just you know, just leave me alone. You know, like just let me concentrate. You I mean, one inward, yeah, properly okay. inward. Right. Um, but what I would take usually is. And this is where I, I find that the, the commander that I was with very good. He used humor very well on, on me. Right. To, to It's like a pressure valve. And he would just make some sort of... Um, he, would just, he was a very calm... He was a very, very calm guy. Whereas I'm very emotional. I was like either high as a kite or really, really down low. Like having the worst time ever. So I would move like that. But he was quite, he was quite a stable guy, even under a phenomenal amount of pressure. Okay. So when I would look at him... And even seeing him just calm, kind of, it was quite infectious. But often or not, he would, he would just banter me a little bit. So when we were, we were in the middle of a firefight, and um, I remember it so distinctly. We were in an irrigation ditch, and the rounds were like literally pinging off the grass around me, and it was just like, oh my god! Like, and I just, I just wanted to lie down and just, I just didn't want to be here anymore, and. Um, not that that was, not that I was showing that necessarily, but uh, he just looked round at me and he saw those kind of those characteristics of me. And he just, I started slipping into this irrigation ditch because of all the weight and because I'm quite small. Yeah. I started slipping into this mud, and I was like, Mark, 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 and he he, he turned round and he was like, Ah. Oh, come on, little man. And, and I was like, and I started laughing. I'm like, stop insulting me. This is serious. And he was like, oh God. And then unfortunately for the rest of tour, I was known as little man. And I was like, I'm not happy with that nickname. But You and Dennis Wise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it, it, it's, it, but that made me a smaller target on the battlefield, Steve. So, yeah, that's uh, you know, like, it. You don't yeah. want to, your blood <laughs> too big or bigger ears or anything like that. But I must admit, those little pressure valves and um, we used humour actually quite a lot um, in those situations and I'm a big believer and you've got to there's two valves you can use you can either laugh or you can cry and we certainly did have like certainly when I got home the the crying valve came on but certainly during her that black humor that dark humor or that sort of ability to raise above the issue I don't know it just it felt give me that truth so it sounds like there's something um, that's quite observable and they encourage in um, ambulance workers who go from one trauma to oh, the next, yeah. and that if they if they're able to zoom out and have humour, not necessarily mm. about the case, yeah, but they're a, they're better equipped and fresher to go into the into the next case, and they they they're able to sustain a high level of performance as a consequence. Oh, huge! Like we, there's a we used to call um, it, especially in like leadership leadership wise, um, the condor moment. So you rise, okay. you take that leadership moment or you take that, you've got to take that breath and go, right, let's look at the big picture here. Let's not get sucked into the, but you know, you're getting shot at. So it's yeah. quite difficult to get out. I'm, I'm thinking I'd be a flappy pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was times I felt like it. But you know, the, 
that's the thing with chaos. It's like that's why it's called chaos because it feels chaotic. Mm-hmm. Like, isn't you? You're just trying to. It took times in those battles sometimes to wrestle back control, and it, the more you flap, the the worse the situation is going to be. So, yeah. and hence why we used to do it a lot in simulation. You know, where people just constantly trying to put the pressure on you, so you get used to that feeling of your heart rate going. And you eventually start to be able to realise you can make decisions right. and, and clearer decisions. Um, and at the time, the, the big thing with the army was they said, the worst thing you can do is not make a decision. Right or wrong, just make a decision. The best one, the gut feeling you feel at that time. Stop thinking too much about it. Your training has kicked in. You're probably gut feeling for a reason. Don't make, just don't get in the situation you haven't made a decision. Right. Just make a decision. So fight or flight yeah. is a good option. Mm-hmm. Freezing is not. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Right. And as I said, in that first 30 seconds, I felt like I wanted, I, I felt like I, I froze because you're just, all that emotion of, when you hear that bullet going over your head, like it makes it, it's like a wasp and it's like, you know, it's very, very close. You, the only way you're going to get out of that situation is if you do something. Yeah. Doing nothing is not the option. I mean, you've, you've got quite a jovial manner when you're talking about <laughs> it, and, and you say that humour um, humor is a is a lifeblood for, for team working, but also getting you out of the situations. Well, mm. um, but you, you then referenced when you're back home. So tell mm. me about the kind of post-manoeuvre phase. How, how do you manage and cope with that? So the, the the do you know what I, on the way on the way home from Afghanistan, um, because of the rise and the kind of um, you know well post traumatic stress and our understanding of it, um, what they do now is when you fly out of Afghanistan, you actually stop off in Cyprus to one of our camps out in Cyprus, yeah. and it's purely just full of people that you've been fighting with um, and. Um, maybe other call signs there as well and the camp is basically shut off from the rest of um, the troops maybe who are stationed in Afghanistan normally okay so it's it's and it's called de- it's called decompression so you've got two days of decompression and they they obviously identify that if you take you straight from a battlefield and then put you onto your local pub for the first time you're going to have drinks mm, yeah. it's not going to go it's, the chances are it's not going to go very well because you're suddenly surrounded by people who don't really understand what you've just been through so they take you to decompression, and what it's a really clever system because it's like the instructors there are they're half they're wearing combats and a polo shirt, so it's almost like they're even visually we're stepping down, right? Okay. Yeah, in terms of visually, right? And they're all very very nice. <laughs> so and, they've got one camo on one side of the cheek, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's clever, that yeah, is, and, isn't it? And, and so they they want you to because you've been up here at this level, like fighting, 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 fighting. They can't just suddenly rip away that environment so they'll yeah. it's almost like visually they're taking away that env- environment and you are taken through a couple of like lectures about what are the symptoms of post-traumatic stress because often and all it happens six months 12 yeah. months way right. later down the line um, than we first thought and also it's almost expectation management they tell you that um you're this is what you're expecting as you go home. Like it's going to be like ticker tape, and everyone's going to be, "Wow, you're a hero! You're an absolute hero!" But actually, you're just going to go back, and your wife has got, for example, if you had a wife, she'll have got herself into a routine with you being away. Yeah. 
and you're going to be then in her back in her routine and that, that can actually cause a bit of dramas and you know with the kids and all the rest of it so it's all about that sort of it's not all going to be a bed of roses when you get back yeah. it's going to be you're going to go through some probably tougher times and these are the ways you can help yourself and then they give you your first like alcoholic drink as well that night and they it's kind of like a you only are meant to, I think they only give you like a couple of cans but you're the cheapest date ever Steve at that point so like one can you're like Done. you know you're away you're yeah. six months and nothing it's a small cup of weak <laughs> yeah. beer yeah and you're still <laughs> like <laughs> based on your body right that's enough for you <laughs> but it's very they're very much guys enjoy this evening but it's all I think I very much feel it was a chance for like Right or wrongly, alcohol does help people open up, especially the kind of the guys who've been maybe through. But just in this instance where they're told, guys, have a few drinks, enjoy yourselves. But the whole point is you are probably with people, you're with people who understand what you've just been through. And when we um, when we had people um, lost or injured, I remember at the time the company commander saying this was like, one of the toughest parts of our like June July time we still had a long way to go before the end of tour and people were getting killed and he was like we will we will mourn these guys later on for now we need to concentrate on our jobs you need mm. to de- you need to compartmentalize that and then this was the chance first chance right guys now we start celebrating the guys that we lost you know like we start remembering them okay. and we can start focusing on that um and so you go through that decompression and yeah, I remember getting home, and um, it, it was about a week a week back, and I, it just feels really strange being back. You've got your mobile phone again; you can just talk to anyone you know you want to. But I actually felt quite anxious with my mobile phone because right. I'm so used to just getting letters, uh, you know, on on a helicopter, and suddenly text messages would come through, and I'm like, I'm like the feel I needed to like reply to them straight away, or people would think I'm rude. I'm like, I, I can't. Right, because okay. life was quite simple out in Afghanistan, you know. It's in you, you go out and patrol, you come, you analyze it, and you come back and you rest. You know, it's life is simple. And I started to feel really anxious, um, and um, I think my body as well. Like I would sometimes be in the supermarket, and suddenly my heart would just like feel like it was jumping out of the chest. Like it would just, it would just suddenly go really, really, really high. Like just, oh my god, like. And I think it was because maybe I wasn't getting the hit of being in a battle zone. Like every now and again, that I would just get an adrenaline rush. Right. And I'd be like, fuck, it's just... And I started like talking to the other guys and they were like, yeah, yeah we, we get these as well. And mm. it's not necessarily post-traumatic stress. It's just your body kind of just on the, the come down. And like mm. I wasn't getting nightmares or anything like that. And Did you have a, a release, like an outlet, an activity that... that- that you found so it gave you solace or restoration um i I just remember um um like crying uncontrollably one evening like and just not really understanding why like it was it was like uh, it was uncontrollable like sobbing and um um and yeah my girlfriend at the time i'd only started going out with her um in the i think was it the january before that year so like she we'd already gone out like four months and then I disappeared off to Afghanistan yeah. for uh, five months and um and yeah I just but I, I just think that needed to that needed to come out and it's bad if you keep it in yeah. uh, and so it was just the kind of process I was going through 
but yeah with post-traumatic stress it it's it really seems to strike initially like kind of six 12 months down the line and um when people start to go a bit um just a bit off the hooks you know sorry off the rails a little bit and it manifests in in different ways but i knew i didn't looking at it i knew i, I didn't have it i right. some of the guys really suffered with it and um it, it's it's kind of a lifelong battle with it and stuff but uh it just shows you like that that whole <clears throat> five six months intense intensity and you're you're having to focus on just the job in hand and you're compartmentalizing a lot of stuff but you you have to i think at the time to focus but the important thing is that you need to take those compartments out and deal with them when you when you're back in kind of normal life um and yeah as I said like there's different ways to to do it but it's certainly um i think the army were getting better at it much okay. better at it yeah. um you know with the you know the decompression um processes and making people more aware of it but you know mental health is such a such a big thing at the minute and they're you know everyone's trying to change that perception of it you know it's yeah. a proper illness you know yeah illness. well as you say if there's a it, now there's a decompression phase that's a built into the process mm. that doesn't mean you're just flying straight back home and, and get on with it. Yeah. Um, and, and at the very least, now society's starting to talk about it mm. by a, a far more constructive way, which is part of that dealing with the compartments. I, uh, I absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow, it makes a lot of my work sound quite trivial. This little wasp, uh, that is a wasp, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm still scared of wasps, Steve, am I? Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to hang around bin, do you? Um, wow. And then you went off to, to I mean, you know, if, if, if that wasn't enough, then you walked worked for the royal family <laughs> I know I know that's I mean that was quite must have been quite a step change yeah um, yeah huge HR desk job in the palace and um, <laughs> yeah it's um like um leaving the army you kind of I came to a crossroads of I need to um I I looked at the jobs like job roles that I would look to be getting at like kind of for the next 10 years and I just thought do you know what? I've I've been there and done it. I've done everything I've wanted in the army. It, this is in the army, so you yeah. you're looking up and thinking, right? Ahead ahead of me yeah. is more of the same, and that was your or not this. not the same, very desk bound. Okay, um, right. So you as a ca- kind of captain, you've done really all the as we would call it, the sexy stuff. You know, we've I, I'd been to I was you know leading leading brilliant people on the battlefield. Um, I did loads of ski racing you know um, loads of hockey loads of sport um but then once you start to get past captain it becomes a lot more bureaucratic and um a lot more sort of desk bound Um, you still do a lot of desk work as an officer anyway but i just looked at i'd done everything i wanted to accomplish i was still having a good time but i just thought do you know what i want to be in control of my life now as in uh, you know the army kind of say look where do you want to live and i'd say you know, I want this job, and they said, "Well, that one's not available. You're moving to North East Scotland." And I'm like, "Well, no, I don't want to live there." So, mm-hmm. I just wanted, I needed to step off, step off the conveyor belt, um, and yeah, I, it hit me more than I thought. I thought it would, like that kind of loss of identity, and I kind of panicked on the first job coming out of the army, and I thought maybe I've. <laughs> it's so ridiculous when I think of it now. Like maybe I've changed, or maybe I've 
you know, growing up in a way and I need to be a bit more sensible. And so this job um, came up with the Royal Household um, to do HR. It's very, and they were looking for an ex-military person because mm. that's what we do. We develop people and, mm. uh, and help them. And, and so, yeah, I did this job and my, my office looked out the front of Buckingham Palace. And every day I used to see changing of the guard and the officer used to come right up to the window and kind of do his little patrol bit. And I'd be like so jealous. I'm like, I just want to be outside. And I'd be like, <laughs> and then also I would like whisper to him. I was like, mate, you got that bit wrong. And he'd be like, well, because of the neck curtains, he couldn't see me. And I was like, Damn it. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I did this job and lovely, incredible people who work for the Royal Household, um, a real mix of um, very like tradition but they're very forward thinking in terms of they've got to keep up with the times and they've got to look after their employees and they've yeah. got to you know in, uh, and it it was a phenomenal experience but I just decided um, that be, in London being in London wasn't mm. for me and then also um, that kind of job where I had to go back to pretty much the same place every day didn't work What did you learn working for the Royal Family? Oh, there's um, there's quite quite a few things. Um, there's a few. Um, I just let me think. I just learnt more than anything about what I didn't want to do as part of a job. Like, and and that's no, in no way insulting the incredible setup that they do have for their employees there. Like it, it's, it's phenomenal. But I realized that I hadn't, my deep down kind of values of what I wanted my life to be like hadn't changed. Like I was still the same person who joined up for that military, you know, for the adventure, for mm. to be out doing stuff. And, um, and I just kind of felt that I had given in to the sort of practical side of my brain, you know, the sort of, um, they call it the the monkey paradox book you know mm. with the, the I'd, I'd kind of the sensible brain had set in which my gut feeling was telling me this this was not the right thing for me like um but amazingly I'm so glad I did it because if I ever got scared afterwards and felt like I was oh I need to just do a job just to get you know by and it started to look something yeah. like that I realized what I what I didn't want mm. so amazingly the big failures have re- big failures have really helped me in my career. Before the army, I tried to become a, a tax consultant, <laughs> and because I just thought that's what people did after university. I went to London, <laughs> and I just thought well, this job's got lots of variety. Uh, tax law seems to change, so I I applied to all these tax consultancy jobs. So <laughs> like thinking about it now, and thankfully um, I got rejected from every single job. But if I hadn't, what would have happened? Maybe I maybe if I'd slipped through the net. Right. I often. But amazingly, because I had hit rock bottom after having no choice, I was like, what do I really want to do? And that's how I ended up right. going to the military. <laughs> so you so. go from, I want to be a tax consultant. <laughs> yeah. Actually, now I've already thought about it, I want to be frontline combat <laughs> yeah. controlling weapons. Yeah, much uh, that's, more sexy. That's the next step. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, it was sport. Sport was the big draw for, um, for me because of... At school, I, I was big into my sports, like uh, like international hockey. And then at university, the hockey at uni- university, Durham, was phenomenal. It was like five days a week. Um, mm. And all my best friends were still those people who I'd been through those kind of sporting experiences with. 
And I just remember thinking, do I have to give all this up to to do something? And then okay. um, I ended up going on a visit to the army and I met this guy that I used to play hockey against. And he was just like, yeah, you could you can join this army and get do loads of sport and you might occasionally need to go to places like Afghanistan. He mumbled something. I was like, no, 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 it doesn't matter where, where do I sign up. I'm in, I'm in. Dad and Ali's place. <laughs> yeah. Um, so now uh, tell me a little bit about your, uh, the, the work you do around disaster relief mm. and support because that, that sounds like it's, it's potentially another use of your skill, another outlet for you to help mm. and support people with, and um, almost the, the, the applying your skill to a different environment. Mm. Um, how, how, how many of those have you done and how, how long have you been doing that for? So, uh, yeah, if you, like when I got back from uh, working on the yachts, um, and like I said, I missed, I, missed, I missed elements of the army. I didn't miss being in the army, I, you know, and I knew I didn't want to be back in the army, but I kind of missed um, the... The, the bits that I really enjoyed, like the adventure part, the going somewhere to try to make a difference, the the people, um, the, 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 sorry, the, the banter. And I just, and it was like a missing piece of the jigsaw. So I, w- I was starting to do a lot of speaking, like trying to build a speaking career. Um, I was trying to do a little bit more sort of coaching people and, and helping them develop. So those pieces of the jigsaw were there and I was like, this is great, but I, I just want to still be occasionally back out there in the kind of the front line yeah. bit and um someone introduced me to this a charity called team rubicon um and it's a charity that was set up by the actually set up by um an american veteran and it is it's mostly veteran volunteers and so veteran volunteers go into imagine there's disaster relief and disaster response and so we are disaster response. So if the difference is that responders go sh- like straight in after disaster when it's absolutely chaotic and they're right. just trying to uh, make assessments on what um, what's needed on the ground. Is there fresh water supplies? You know, like the, but you're going into you know, the whole place is in, in like a horrible, you know, like a terrible disaster area. So it's very, very difficult conditions. Disaster relief is the guys who come in like maybe one or two weeks after. Okay. So you've set the conditions for them to be able to go, you know, you guys then, you know, all the big charities and stuff, then they can start, you know, um, like get it. You've given them the information of what people need. And and, and so um, we go in um, to do this chaotic bit. And because you're veterans, because you're that, because you've got that experience of being used to that situation of, Guys, uh, I know you've all just met each other, your team, um, but you need to get on this plane. Um, off you go to the Caribbean that I went to last year, um, and just make stuff happen. Like that—that's that's that's, that's, that's your remit. Yeah, that's right. your remit. Of like so, so a, a disaster occurs. You mm. might see it in the news. An event is happening. Yeah, and you get a call. Yeah, and you're on a plane, basically. Yeah, exactly. And Team Rubicon. Um, see, they've now got their UK charity. Exactly the same. Um, team Rubicon full of veterans and they basically got a database of people like me um and the 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 big thing is it is it ticks so many in the boxes for us like not only going off to do something important but it's almost like a bit of um therapy for us because you're surrounded by people who get you like you get that sort of this craziness of we like going into disaster areas right. um and so 
it's almost like being back in the army again. You're, you're getting, it's, it's, as I said, it's a therapy, like you're able to... So is it a, requ- is it a requisite to be a veteran um, in, that, in that sense? You know, is it the sort of thing that your milkman can rock up and go, I fancy a bit of that? Or is there a requisite sort of level of skill and um, technical ability that you need for that? Um, I would say the majority are veterans, and that's how I was kind of first pushed. Mm. But then um, you now have... Um, the, they they also have people with certain like certain skills like for example um if you were in the fire brigade or you were okay. you know anything like that but then also as well like you've got people who if you imagine you're going in a small teams you need really sets kind of like set roles and set skills like let's say you just need to the, the i think what binds us all together is you're okay living in pretty difficult conditions. And so if you've got those skills plus something that can add to, for example, let's say you work for Vodafone, you might have some skills in terms of setting up telecommunications. So we're, let's say we're dealing with like like satellite phones or you need to set up a little yeah. initial. So yeah, they, it, it's amazing how the people who, but we all come together because we just want to make a difference in difficult situations. And yeah, as I said, they, they give you a call or they send out an email saying, right, guys, uh, this, this, for example, last September, they called me, uh, sorry, email went out after Hurricane Irma. Mm. Um, now, Irma was um, Cat 5 hurricane, had already kind of destroyed, like done a lot of damage to the British Virgin Islands mm. um, and Antigua. Um, and... Um, the big problem, actually, amazingly, the big problem was getting there. Um, a lot of, obviously, a lot of the airports were closed. Um, but yeah, they said, "Who's keen to go?" So I said, "I'm, I'm free for the next couple of weeks. I can." You had to commit to like two or three weeks mm. um, before they could be able to like get you back again. And then they, they would basically take in everyone who said they were available, and they looked at the problem of what needed to needed to happen. And they needed a team uh, to go out. Um, one of they had several teams, but one of the teams needed to go out to Antigua because all the relief aid was going to be coming into Antigua. And then we would be able to help. It was donated by like Virgin, I think it was at the time. Then we would be able to help it get to where it needed to get to, like smooth, like almost like the the grease and all the cogs. Yeah. So we would just try. Distribution of yeah, the resources. Yeah, like and. So we would have a team maybe out in British Virgin Islands. Um, we would try and get a team there. Our team would be in Antigua, and then we would um, we kind of lia- we'd be able to liaise together and make sure because you've got all the the customs and the red tape to deal with, and that that was difficult. So because of my background in um, sort of diplomacy and and knowing all those kind of systems and being able to get to know connect with people really really quickly. Um, and kind of build that bond because those relationships were going to help us. Yeah, that's get, interesting. Because we don't have money as a charity. <clears throat> we didn't have money as a charity. It's, it's, it's all going to be on relationships. So what would be your top tips then? You got hit the ground. Yeah. You, you're, you're a foreign object. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <yeah. laughs> um, and you don't necessarily know what the personalities. So, I mean, I'm sure you would have perhaps got a sense of maybe the culture. Mm-hmm. What are your top tips of kind of making that connection and that initial rapport. I think the best thing, and it's something that we're obviously moving away from as a, like a, a human social species, is you've got to get face-to-face with people. And 
we would initially we were like trying to send out emails of like can you help us we've got all this aid but we who's the right person to can you could you maybe put it on the tanker that's going out to da, 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 and just getting like literally yeah. zero reply and i think the biggest thing we did was get face to face with people and um, try and meet as many people as possible but the first thing is just listen to people it's like mm. we were not the person there to go and say save people or um there was it happened, you know, this, for example, unfortunately, big hurricanes happen in the Caribbean a lot of the time. And they've got their government, governmental teams ready to go. So it was a it was an understanding of where I'm coming from as a level, but also appreciating that you're not there to sympathize, like not sympathize, what's the word, patronize. You're there to, I can help you. But it was, we just went in there and we're just like basically asking ways of, you know, what are you having issues with? What are you having challenges with? You know, is there any little gap that we can help you out with? And it's listening, like, it's unbelievable how many people don't really listen to each other. Genuinely, like, and we spent days just going around in circles and sometimes you feel like, how are we, we're not getting anywhere. But getting face-to-face people gives you the chance to build rapport and it be, because it allows you to be like allows you to build those sort of empathy levels as well yeah you can only do that face-to-face you're picking up social cues you're picking up and then you start to build that very very quickly that that level of trust with people because mm. we were a brand new charity they never heard of yeah. and so like they would be like well who are these guys and who they if we had rocked up thinking guys we're okay we're, we're gonna help you out they would have been like do one it's exactly the same uh, we, we we see this all the time and um, I'm glad you said that that word listen because it ultimately you're not in a position to, to do anything until you know what's going on mm-hmm. but equally they will feel valued for, for having shared their their thoughts um, and like I say irrespective of the badge whether you're a newcomer or a, or a proven force then mm-hmm. uh, they're going to get you straight away aren't they they're going to say okay this this person's interested and wants to know how they can help oh like absolutely and it it does take time like i'm always i really like there's a a um a staircase model you can use of like listening empathy rapport trust and then you can influence people or persuade them and it's a staircase model for a reason you can't just go to someone trust me because the whole point is that trust is a, a feeling, not an instruction. You can't just say you need to. There needs to be something behind it. Why? Why you're doing it? And the very least, it comes from just listening to people, listening what they need and what they want, responding to them. As in, that's how you're building empathy and rapport. Mm. And then that's. And amazingly, we started. We started to get in front of the right people. And amazingly, actually, we ended up getting more help from the people that we were staying with and their friends and their colleagues. Right. So we would say, look, we're stuck. We've got we've got this tanker full of um, relief aid that's come in from the UK. It's landed in Tiga today, but we don't know how to get it. We don't have a, a boat or something to get it to. And then the guys we were staying with, because we had spent a few days with them just getting to know them, they are like, oh, my friend works in customs and give us two seconds and he could okay, verify so you were, us to... You were activating people yeah, as well because absolutely. you were talking to them and sharing your problems. Yeah. You've listened to someone else's problem. You're, help, you're getting someone else to help you solve it. Oh, it, it's, it's unbelievable. And so we made a big thing of, right, for the next few days, we're just going to 
every connection, every contact we could possibly go meet, doesn't matter who they are or what they are. Mm. It's an island mentality, so everyone gets to kind of know each other. Um, and the problem with the Caribbean disaster was it was multi-country over multiple and all separated by the sea. This was nothing that we had ever really dealt with before in terms of the complexity because you've got borders that you're trying to deal with mm. and red tape. And all this time that we were doing that, then obviously we hadn't really been watching, but out in the Atlantic, another hurricane was brewing mm. and suddenly it became another Cat 5 hurricane and it was coming straight towards us. Um, and I, this it sounds bad, but we were actually... So some of us who were actually quite excited because, you know, wanted to feel full force of our like this is an incredible act of nature but then back to the but then when you thought <laughs> yeah then we thought yeah, maybe back to not. those character interviews <laughs> yeah. you, like, you, you like being a hurricane right we've got, we've got a job for you <laughs> yeah but then I actually realized oh this is actually it's actually pretty serious um and everything went into lockdown like so all the help that we've been trying to do complete lockdown um our team were so frustrated and actually we were we were having proper we were getting really angry at within ourselves because we were all tense we wanted to make a difference and we felt like everything was going into lockdown because this other hurricane yeah. all our hard work had been and then we were kind of getting a bit frustrated with our headquarters back in the uk because you know we wanted to be somewhere making a difference and all we were doing was hunkered down and in, yeah. in, a, in a house in antigua and we were like so we were like we felt really helpless and i think all that frustration was coming out then the hurricane just missed us, but it was very clear when um, when the sun came up actually the next day that it had gone right over the top of Dominica. And it like when a hurricane slows, amazingly, if it stops almost, that's when it's it's the strongest. And so it literally stopped over Dominica. And then suddenly we realised we need to get to Dominica. This is we're now we have a good chance to get people on the ground to get this you know make all those assessments and get those satellite phones to the hospitals and mm. make sure that they can request what they need and amazingly we got this phone call out of like nowhere um saying um a guy from one of the sailing schools that we had made this random contact with and he's like guys um tomorrow i'm sending one of my crews uh, who instructs people on how to be sailors they volunteered they're going to take a boat screw red tape they're going to fill it up with water and f- supplies. Um, I'm donating the boat. Um, do, you, do you fancy a free lift down to Dominica? Like, okay. And this is all came from just the connections we had made with yeah, people well. and, and helping them out where we could and building trust with people. And yeah, well, well we got to Dominica and um, it was it was quite shocking. I, I, you know, I've been to some interesting places, but Dominica, I've, I've never seen anything like it. Like it was a bomb had gone off in every... In every street and um amazingly once we jumped off the boat um thankfully the customs the port was still was had been still protected because that's one of the more difficult challenges but if it's not because if you're bringing stuff in how is it going to get distributed properly to the people who need to get it and, and there's a curfew in place because of looting and yeah. we called our headquarters and they said um guys just let you know um uh there's been reports um, our intelligence have shown there's been reports of shootings and we're exactly where you are. And so we're advising you don't go on the ground, but we'll leave it. You're the person on the ground. You can make that call. Thankfully, we're talking about the, the team I was in. Uh, we had this guy called Mac, who's an ex-paratrooper. 
he is massive and so there's me and him and obviously he was brought in to be obviously the muscle as well and a phenomenally talented brilliant guy who's done some incredible stuff all, all over the world so we went and talked to the 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 policeman the one policeman who was there and we were like look what do you think and the policeman was like look you know you need to be back in two hours anyway because the curfew's in place but um you know before nightfall what do you think you know it's up to you guys and he was like he's fine because he's got like weapons and all the rest of it whereas i just looked at mac and i was like mac what do you think and he was like do you know what let's just take anything that looks kind of expensive almost like let's take our backpacks and let's just go and if we get that gut feeling that something's wrong because amazingly you do get those in places like afghanistan you I think it's a human thing. We yeah, right. know. Sense. Yeah, sense. Something, something's about to yeah. kick off. So he was like, if we get that sense, we'll, we'll head back and is we'll that, spread is that. Is that an internal thing? Is that an internal feeling? Yeah, I, it, it is. And I think it, a lot of people talk about it like it's just some sort of... But I remember being on patrol and things like that. And so what, what your, I think what our brain is doing is that we always looked out for the absence of the normal on patrol. Right. It, was a, it was a thing we were told. Interesting. If, if something like, you know, if you're going on patrol every day and you see a set of kids every day at three o'clock playing and then suddenly you go down there that one day and the kids aren't there, you're like, hey, what's what's going on? Sub, I think a lot of this is happening subconsciously and your brain's picking up all this. Something, something doesn't feel right today. Something feels a bit different. And that I think that's where it's coming from. Right, okay. So yeah, no, we, wow. we, yeah, we had it off. Yeah, so you're tuning into that. You're, it you're, must be, yeah. Wow, you must not want to read the news. Because <laughs> you're like, that's not normal. That's not normal either. <laughs> yeah. But it is, it must be something that we, we all do automatically. You know when you just don't feel right or you feel like okay. you're in a dodgy area or something I think we should give a lot more or maybe I don't know maybe, yeah so you've got some yeah. some audio cues people chatting you've yeah. got you can see some some things but then when they're not there that's just a loud yeah. loud stimulus as much as anything oh, oh wow. m- massively like and yeah the, the Taliban used to think of very ingenious ways to uh to to fight us because they didn't want to fight us across the fields. They prefer to fight us with them. Um, for example, uh, if you're patrolling, you'd all the time be looking for little symbols on the side of the road that would be indicate maybe an ID where they'd buried an ID, uh, you know, the booby traps, mm. because they'd want to remember where they put them. But then also maybe tell the locals that's that's an ID. Don't step over that bit. Right. But for us, we were like, if something <clears throat> just doesn't look right, it's like. That just looks a little bit out of place. That like pile of rocks for some reason. Um, so yeah, all all the time you were you were asking to mm. to do that. And uh, amazingly, what they used to do was um, so at the front of a patrol you have like a valon. Uh, it's a um, like a metal detector. So the guy at the front is like basically sweeping the ground, making it safe for everyone else to walk over. And obviously, the ta- I think the Taliban obviously saw this kind of technique that we were doing and they adjusted their procedure. So what they did was um, they would allow us to walk up like a road with a irrigation ditch on the side. And then they would shoot at us because they knew our, um, you know, to take cover, take some shots and take cover. And so what they would do is they put the ID into the irrigation ditch. So you would jump oh, into God. it because you wouldn't check where the ID was. Yeah. So, the, you know, it, it's so, yeah, like... <laughs> Just one thing going back. I just remember being exhausted when I'm going back because you just constantly think, what if, what if, what if? You're always thinking that as a as a person. And it's a bit like going back to the Caribbean. Right, Mac, we're going to... Let, let's do this. Let's go out in the ground. 
And it's always asking those questions of, what if this was to happen now? What if this was to happen? Where would I escape? Where would I do? Where is the best place to, to mm. protect myself? So, yeah. so when you go to a disaster zone like that, and, uh, okay, you're only going to be there two weeks, so you wouldn't necessarily yeah. see the full full um, effort. What, what would success look like for you in those in those two weeks? So, um, it, it's yeah, it's, it's uh, at times we did actually have we would have someone we'd be generating all the kind of listing off all the work we were doing and that would go back to our headquarters back in the uk and so they're they're almost like kind of like number crunching as well for us um and it would be things like for success for us because because it's just that initial two weeks Mm. um it it would be things like getting you know reporting back from from the hospitals in the area, like if they didn't have communications or, you know, you know, getting getting them in contact with the charity that's going to bring in like the Red Cross, all their supplies to make sure they're getting getting what they want. It could be um, making sure a route, like a road is just cleared yeah. to, to enable like machinery to come in and start like repairing stuff. It could be bringing a water source to a place that hadn't been, you know, had got water before. It was really, it sounds like so really basic, but it was, that's really, as a small, kind of as a small charity, you've got to be very, it's weird because the British Army were there as well, and they were dealing um, more with the British Virgin Islands, and so they can have a big, big effect on the ground. So for us, if we were able to facilitate, if we were able to give these big organizations information that can allow them to make better decisions that that was good for us okay. um it, it's weird like because it would change it almost change every time the charity were in nepal straight after the earthquakes and um amazing we they still do legacy they go back to the schools they initially right. helped uh, and help rebuild other buildings and so your um it sounds like that first response is um hugely sorting the priority mm. in terms of well we might need to sort the communication out of the hospital but if we can't get people to the hospital yeah, so you're doing if if ifs yeah, to sort it out yeah. so that you're almost uh, giving a nudge to the the thing that's going to limit the ability to support and help people oh, oh massively and i suppose you're you're almost moving those like priorities on a, like an hourly basis like it right. is and you, you know things situations change and um all the time and yeah but as i said you've got to get that in place first yes it might change slightly but at least you've got that priority right because as i said you're small teams you're just trying to make a little bit of you're just trying to facilitate something making life something a little bit easier along the along the line because a week later we were bringing in a main body of like a big group of people to then again go out and make bigger assessments on the ground so like yeah. our teams these big teams would then go out to um, residential areas and they literally be going to every house going how the, the damage of it and what it's needed to, is there electricity you know da, 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 da. and then they can give that to the big agencies and go right okay. this area is in terrible states this okay. is what you need to do with it. you know like as in if we had to prioritize an area it would be that bit so mm. because information information sending it sharing it you can imagine it is just is 
it's crazy in those situations so it's yeah just trying to make that uh, that wrestle back a little bit of that chaos and mm. set the foundations for people to get the right type of aid at the right time mm. so, so yeah good wow um such incredible incredible work uh that, that you're doing there and so um last question I, i'm curious to know who because you, you've spent your kind of whole life supporting people mm. who supports you how do you get support <laughs> yeah um i've been really lucky i've been really lucky with my um my parents especially their understanding of how many careers i've probably had in my life and um especially with uh, my parents and you know in one element i felt like the army was quite sort of selfish in a way you know i was going off to afghanistan mm. and um you forget the amount of people that I knew when I was in trouble or like in danger, um, but my mum and dad didn't. And yeah. um, for them to take that, the, the way they took that was quite incredible. They never questioned anything I did. They were always encouraging me of, you know, you've, you've made the decision, you've, you know, you're the best person to, to make these career choices. And um, do you know what? They fully got engaged with the army because... Um, the army loved to bring in people's families, you know, it's like, you know, to, to help with the kind of uh, the, you know, the understanding of it. And they also understand that families are, provide so much support, especially when you're away, you know, ultimately they're the ones more worried, you know, incredibly. Yeah. Um, and, but my parents never even hesitated when I was, when I do these things, they, they're always, you know, we know you're up, you know, we know you're up for it. And, but they know that that's what makes me who I am. I need, I need to kind of do these things. So yeah, never having them hesitate with their support or unwavering has, has been unbelievable. Um, my, um, my, my wife as well, actually, as I said, I, I'm quite an emotional person. Like I, I'm very up and down, um, in terms of like, I'm suddenly having the best day to suddenly, Oh my God, this is the worst day ever. And, and she's very stable, like in terms of her emotional and, and, so that that's that having that bedrock having that bedrock all the time is 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 really important to me um so yeah and i just feel i've got like a like a massive support group and like friends are very understanding of it and um you know that's why it's just thought especially with the military and i've got my military group of friends who understand where we've been to and we're still like the core group of friends that I've taken from the army will be my friends for life. Mm. Like as in they, cause they understand exactly what I've been through, but then I've got that escapism with, you know, that support from my parents to say, you're capable of doing whatever you want to do. You know, it just takes hard work and, you know, and, and we will support you in anything you decide to do, you know, even though they're probably, you know, when I've, I've said, right, I'm off to the a disaster area. They're probably like, oh my God, not again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, but that, knowing they've got, they've got my back, you know, it's great. Yeah. And, it's, and then especially with my wife as well, just having that, that kind of that support as well. But it, it's, um, it comes in a lot of layers, doesn't mm. it? So like, I believe in, in what I do and I know I get very down in the dumps when I don't get, when I, when a piece of that jigsaw is missing. And so they understand, I think, that this yeah. is just what makes me who I am and stuff. So I've got to, got to do it. Big round of applause for your parents and your missus then. Yeah, um, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing your insights. Um, you know, the, the world's a better place for having you sort of 
you just thinking about making it making it all happen so um yeah thank you so much adam no Stephen, absolute pleasure before before we close the 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 recording then so um if people want to find out a little bit more about you where can they go um well there's actually two kind of two main places um so in terms of my um where I, I pass on a lot of this kind of experience and coaching and development is uh, with the group that I work with, Fieri Leadership. So fieriLeadership.com. Um, and yeah, that shows you kind of, we use people who have had experiences like me to do stuff for real and then be able to pass that on for them. Yeah. Or or my website, um, Adam yeah. K, sorry, adamconlon.co.uk. Go on, say, say it again. Sorry, adamconlon.co.uk. We'll, we'll put, the, we'll put the, um, both those links into the, the show notes. But Adam, thanks so much. Oh, cheers, Steve. Thanks Brilliant. very much. Cheers. cheers. You can find out more from Adam on Twitter at Adam K. Conlon and look up his website, www.conlon.co.uk adamconlon.co.uk you can follow me on twitter at ingham underscore steve and supporting champions also on twitter at support underscore champs you can subscribe on youtube itunes supportingchampions.co.uk